Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name's Sarah Shackett. I'm a writer over at IndieWire, and we have something a little bit different for you this week. I was very fortunate to get the chance to speak to John Boyce about his latest sports documentary series, which just finished up uh, last week. It's called The History of the Minnesota Vikings. It begins with the story of a fake runestone and a young boy who gets caught out in the same blizzard that destroyed the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. And it touches on everything from American militarism to Prince. And it is about absolutely wild football games. Boys and his producer and co-narrator Alex Rubenstein are masterful in both their writing and their visual presentation about centering that sport is a human endeavor and therefore it is full of great stories. And John is one of the great storytellers on the internet. Y'all, this like nine hour YouTube series is probably my favorite documentary this year. And John has distilled a really funny, sharp, and wonderful way to tell stories that he gets into in detail here. So if you are at all interested in sports documentary or storytelling, there is something for you here. So please, please enjoy this conversation with John Boyce. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about uh, this nine-hour documentary. Amazing stuff. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, I mean, the pleasure is all mine, really. I, I've, I've seen the guest list of this of this podcast, and like, there are some amazing filmmakers on there. So, uh, yeah, can't wait to to be exposed as a total fraud in comparison. This is going to be great. That's what we're here for—just <laughs> imposter syndrome. <laughs> I reread the work that my colleague Steve Green did, uh, I think it was a couple years ago on just secret base in general. And so I'm curious, from like a technical standpoint, has the process of making these videos evolved any from the history of the Atlanta Falcons to the history of uh, the Minnesota Vikings? From the technical side, they actually did in one big way, which is that I no longer use iMovie to edit them. Ah. I finally joined the big leagues. I've upgraded to Final Cut Pro. And I I am kicking myself for not having done that years sooner. Uh, I think it just exposes how amateurish uh, my workflow can be sometimes. But yeah, up until with the history of the Mariners, the Falcons, all those, I'd used iMovie and my life became a lot simpler once I upgraded. So uh, from the technical end, that was a big one. And I feel like one thing Alex Rubenstein, my producer, and I are always uh, trying to search for is how to tell uh, stories through charts in ways that are more interesting and more, I guess, discernible. We want to make our charts as big and loud and weird as possible, while also conveying the information that we want them to convey and not leaving anybody out. And, you know, we've tried a lot of different experiments in that regard. Uh, some have worked out better than others, but we were really happy with this one. There was a moment early in the first episode where you were sort of breaking down Steve Stonebreaker's uh, Yard of Martini, where just like the animation of the martini glass uh, was such, I was like, oh, this is very sophisticated for <laughs> for Secret Base. And it, it feels like this series is both more fun and more ambitious in a lot of cool ways. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, that um, Steve Stonebreaker uh, scene was very funny for us because it was like, well, we've learned how to build basic polygons. Can we use this to tell this funny story? You know, it, it looks incredibly cheap, which is a joke I think we play into. And I think people kind of are along for the ride. Like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of Z fighting on this little um, dumb vase of uh, martini that uh, people are looking at. But, you know, we can kind of couch it in the fact that like, yeah, we... 
we do kind of own our amateur status as filmmakers, despite actually doing it for a living. You know, it, it does look tacky in a way that we hope comes off as funny. Yeah, and playful. Because does that story really need more sophisticated rendering? I would argue no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose not. I don't think it needs the forensic files level of like high gloss treatment or anything like that. I think it got the dig- dignity it deserved for sure. Absolutely. What program do you use to render the charts? Is it Maya? Is it something else? It's uh, Google Earth, actually. Oh, amazing. Yeah, Google Earth is a, first of all, we use it all the time for, you know, whenever we do sort of live act, like on the spot, geographical explanation. You saw that at the beginning of the Viking series. You saw the Google Earth credit and everything like that. Um, But we actually use that same app for everything else. And um, what I do is I turn off all the um, terrain layers, make it completely flat, get a PNG file that's solid black, 100 by 100 pixels, and stretch it out over the entire planet. And then all of a sudden, we've got this uh, blank canvas. And on that canvas, uh, the software lets you drop image files um, and build polygons and turn those polygons into more sophisticated polygons. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's where it comes from. It feels like, I'm, I'm curious how much you think about that imagery in the script or whether it's more in the edit where it feels like there's very deliberate moments throughout every episode where you sort of emphasize the scale of the the sort of hero chart and and the vikings journey that never regresses into a slump that always rose forward and i'm curious sort of how you think about the visuals even as you're sort of putting down the story and the information that you're trying to sell So the hero chart, um, we kind of interchangeably call it like a hero chart or like a boss chart. Um, Basically, the main thing on, you know, you could also call it like the Christmas tree on which we hang all the other little ornaments and stuff. We actually built that first uh, before we ever started writing anything and before we even finished like outlining the project, because we knew our central theme was going to be illustrating the Vikings as a team that um, has this eternal, endless, mountainous weight toward a Super Bowl, but has just never gotten there despite, by all rights, really should have had one by now. That that theme was the one thing we knew for sure. And we were like, okay, so what is the chart that is going to convey that in the most simple way? And the one that, you know, won't come back to bite us like six months from now if we find some other theme. And uh, so that was the thing we built first. And we had a couple of like demos and prototypes that we ended up like ditching because they were just too complicated. And I think it was the third one where we were finally like, yeah, we nailed it. It does feel like that was the core theme, but really feels like this series in comparison to some of the other work you've done has a a core protagonist in Bud Grant. And I'm curious, did that just come out of doing research and reading his book? Was that something that sort of evolved as the scripts did? Well, when I came into this, I was very much a Vikings casual, somebody who had always, I liked the Vikings. I've been fond of them, but, um, and I knew who Bud Grant was. I knew the broad strokes of the guy, you know, disciplinarian, super stern faced guy who looked mad all the time on the sideline. Uh, it wasn't until I, I read his autobiography and read a lot of the things that have been written about him that I came across a very different portrait of the guy. And I just remember, I mean, this this gets a little bit personal, but, uh, you know, uh, toward the end of last year, um, my dog was getting very old and uh, it was getting to the point where we were having to make a decision about him. And it was around that time I was reading Bud Grant's autobiography. He is very famously someone who loves his dogs. And uh, one of the things he said 
he dedicates like an entire chapter to how much he loves dogs. One of the things he said was like, when you have to start asking the question, that's when you know it's time. And I was like, damn, he's absolutely right. <laughs> and uh, he, he went on to say, yeah, it's the toughest decision I've ever had to make. It's awful. It's horrible every time I've gone through it. And it was just, it, it was it was kind of unlike any experience I've ever had, where it's just like, man, I feel like I've, I've never met the guy. He's never met me, but I, I feel like he gave me some some real advice here. So it was kind of from that point. I mean, that was not the reason that we centered him, but that was one of the points at which it became evident to me that he was like a truly special guy. Um, not a guy that's completely without flaws by any means. Um, you know, I don't want to lionize him too much, but definitely fascinating enough to make him the main character of the, of the story. He is certainly uh, a lot more than a Christmas tree, but you do get to sort of hang a lot of points that the, the series wants to make about football and about America um, on his conduct as as complicated and layered as it is. And I'm curious kind of how, you know, I think especially episode two, what the parades are for sort of gets into that. Is that something that sort of suggested itself from the history or is that something that you kind of realized was a place that you could go and like drove there. That, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, it kind of, I can't remember exactly what inspired me to kind of go off on that direction, although it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. It's the theme of football specifically, sports in general, but football definitely specifically being sort of a synthesized replacement for war is something that I've dwelled on a lot and I've thought about it for so many years now that I think there must be at least a little bit to it. Definitely taking a lot of license and jumping to a few conclusions, but I I kind of drew a contrast from, you know, Bud Grant's idea of America, right? Where, you know, he tried to serve in World War II, but he was just barely too young, didn't make the cut. Um, So he has a very different vision of America, different perspective on America than um, even the players he was coaching, like in the 70s in the Vietnam era. And it just sort of is a reflection of how much America has changed and how much we are changing, despite maybe not really taking full stock of it. You know, uh, one thing in, a, in the Falcon series that I asked, it was a hypothetical, but I asked, like, can you name one military general? And most people, I'm sure, probably cannot who's actively serving right now. Uh, can, can you name 28 quarterbacks? Uh, I, I feel like even most people on the street who's, who don't watch football at all could at least name you know, three or four. So it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a shift and the ground's shifted beneath our feet in ways that I don't, again, don't think we've fully accounted for. And that was just kind of something I wanted to explore. Yeah. Especially I think because true of sports and of lots of other forms of entertainment is that they are communal. Um, and that, you know, what they say is something about us. And towards that end, I'm, I'm curious sort of about, premiering the episodes on YouTube and sort of having having the chat response go as you go. And I don't remember if that was true of the Falcon series, but I'm curious why you guys took that approach instead of just putting the videos up. So the first time we ever tried that feature was um, with our Michael Jordan Bobcats documentary that we did uh, last fall. And um, that was the first time we'd ever tried it. We were a little nervous about how it would play out or whatever. It turns out, you know, it got like a huge reception and it was super fun, like not only for the audience, but just for us. It's it was a blast. So we were like uh, Will Bukema, our um, my fellow executive producer of Secret Base, and I talked about it and we were like, 
let's just do every one of these like that. And um, so, yeah, we ran all seven as a premiere and it was fun. I mean, a small fraction of the people who watched the video showed up for the live stream, which is understandable because people don't want to, you know, schedule their lives around a YouTube video. But uh, the people who showed up, like, it, it was super positive, super fun. I mean, it, it, it's one of the most fun moments I've ever had, like, as somebody who makes stuff. That's awesome. You mentioned in sort of the the final episode that there was a little bit of creep where you had maybe intended this to go for seven hours and ended up going for nine and a half. And so I would love to ask you about the edit and kind of where you decided to go in a little bit deeper or leave a little bit more in. And also if there's anything that you're really gutted got cut. <laughs> yeah, there are some things that we, some incredibly tough cuts um, that nonetheless, we think we made the right call because at some point the series does have to end. Um, but yeah, we, we really did. Alex and I thought it was originally going to be seven. And like you said, it was closer to nine. Um, a lot of that was because once we got to the later episodes, we realized like there's got to be you know, we were trying to fill both buckets of like, are we saying what we really are coming here to say um, while also doing justice by the story of the Minnesota Vikings? And at some point we, we realized this can't be an either or thing. Like we if we're going to do this, we're going to do the whole thing. Um, and of course, it doesn't hurt that, you know, the 2000s Vikings have the most busy decade any sports team has ever had, probably. <laughs> um the playoff games between 1992 and 1994, there were three playoff games. And the visuals for that took us about, Alex and I took about probably 12 hours combined to build those um, visuals. And we end up breezing through them in like 11 seconds or something like that. And then I, I just look at them, fast forward, fill in, and I'm like, wow, there goes about two days worth of work. That's amazing. Um, but, you know, things like that, um, times where you know not super important stuff happened we just realized we needed to 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 drop stuff like that just to make room for you know the the point of the entire thing yeah there's i i mean you and alex have, have gotten to uh i'm sure you have just such an instinct for it at this point but like it's it's striking to me when y'all choose to sort of lean in and go drive by drive even when i'm sure a lot of people watching know that final field goal is not going to go in versus, you know, breezing through things very quickly. I Again, I'm curious, kind of, is that something you sort of have to feel out in the edit or are there versions of it where sort of you you write out everything and then figure out, you know, what is the essential information that has to be in the video? So Alex and I have such a good rapport at this point. We have logged so many reps like working together and and um, and everything that I can read his script and know exactly what it needs visually. Um, and he conversely will write knowing like, okay, this is these are the assets John is going to be build, be able to build for this. So I'm going to write to that. You know, sometimes uh, you know, a lot of times we'll just we tell each other just write this out and then we'll cut what we need to cut. Um, but when it comes to the sort of camera movements, when you see, you know, the the game play by play tick toward the inevitable, everybody's I would say, you know, three quarters of the people watching this video know exactly how this game ends. Um, but it's kind of like, I mean, dread is an emotion and we're trying to try to invoke emotion. And I think my closest analog is like if it's um, 
you know, uh, if you're a freshman in high school, it's Monday morning at 6.25 a.m. You just woke up and you know the alarm's going off at 6.30 and you're like, oh, God, I just had to sit here for five minutes and then it's Monday morning and it's cold out and I got to go out there. Like, it's we, we try to capture that dread of those five minutes where it's not actually materially serious, but you still feel like crap. <laughs> um, and we, we really try to distill that, not so that we could all feel like crap together, but uh, so that we could all kind of have that communal experience that, you know, we're all familiar with, even if we're not Vikings fans. I think another thing that really does a, a great job of sort of setting a mood and evoking a feeling, whether it's a uh, dread or something else, is your music selection. So I'd love to hear kind of about how you organize that. Are you just constantly trolling APM for things? How, how those choices get made? Yeah, I do a whole lot of listening on APM. One little side trick I, I like to use, because APM actually just um, introduced a pretty cool, like, sort of algorithm feature where you can click it and it's like more songs like this and it'll try its best to like find more tracks like that and it usually has a batting average high enough to at least point me toward an album that I hadn't heard before that I really like and uh yeah sometimes I'll just uh throw it into Spotify and be like uh, Spotify show me some songs that are that you think are like this and you know as as hesitant as I am to um, give credit to AI in any way. <laughs> I got to give the devil his due and uh, admit that like, hey, it works. And and we found some like great composers. Of course, there's like the old standbys, um, Dieter Reith, uh, Keith Mansfield, Hawkshaw, Bennett, uh, Francis Monkman, um, probably my favorite of all time. Um, but we came up with some others. There's a composer named Graham DeWild who did some like absolutely astoundingly weird but also really like catchy stuff in the early 80s that i'm like man this is so weird it just i can't even place a decade to this this is just so out there so um yeah we we knew that we wanted to use as many tracks from from his that sort of era of his work as possible um but i mean yeah honestly selecting music and uh putting music to the video is is maybe my favorite part of the whole thing how I, I'm both curious kind of like from, okay, we're doing this to finished file, how long it takes and also um, sort of how long the scoring takes for it. So the whole process, um, I looked back at my folder and it looks like Alex and I kind of started doing some pre-work, some like background research and playing around with stats and stuff back uh, last November. And it was like the beginning of this year. So early, first week of January when we first started going full speed ahead, you know, full time working on this thing. So yeah, in, in total, uh, somewhere around like 10 months is is about how long it took from start to finish. Um, the Maybe one of the reasons I like the music scoring part so much is that it does not take a ton of time. Um, I just I keep a big playlist file of like here's like 200 songs I love and I sort them by just track length and whether or not they're happy or dreadful or somewhere in between or just strange. And I'm like, OK, I need a weird track right here. What's a, what's a weird track we haven't heard from in a while? And I'll, I'll go with that one. Yeah, that does sound like a lot of fun. This is uh, a little bit of a broad question, so I apologize for it in advance, but I'm curious kind of how you think about the audience for a series like this and not 
leaving anybody behind, but also being able to speak truthfully to uh, folks who are in the fandom or who are in football fandom more generally? That's a great question. It's one we we have asked ourselves many times. Um, We know that we are after, um, you know, at Secret Base, not just Dorktown, not just like my projects, but Secret Base as a whole, um, we are just about stories first, and they just happen to be about sports because sports are the factory that produces so many amazing stories. Um, But we are talking to the person who um, is the casual sports fan or um, isn't into sports at all or actively hates sports. Um, There's a lot of, like, sadly... Yeah, there's a lot of sports ball uh, kind of shade going around. Exactly. There's that kind of stuff. And it's like, I, I honestly, I don't blame people for talking that way because traditionally there is a huge chunk of humanity, at least in America, who did not get the invite. And they're more or less implicitly told, uh, no, this is not for you. Um, the NFL, baseball, NBA, this is not meant for you. Um, get lost. And so we want to kind of speak to those people and be like, no, we, like this is, we are making this for you. Um, we're making this for like the typical, you know, dude who wears a jersey to the to the stadium every Sunday for sure. Uh, but we're also talking to you. We're talking to everyone. There's nobody we're not talking to um, unless we bore you, um, in which case we don't mind. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, I mean, from sort of finding music that is deliberately weird to finding like the particular stat that can sort of make the gravity of someone's effort make sense. It feels like the goal is to sort of out what weirdos everyone who plays sports are. Yeah, that is part of it. Uh, The music selection is actually a really intentional way to sort of extract um, football from its normal packaging. Like, I love NFL films music, like the very orchestral, the grand stuff. Like, it sounds amazing. But for the most part, we like to stay way away from that. Like, we're going to set this play to some weird, um, you know, synthesizer from the late 70s or some, like, easy listening jazz from 1994 that's what we're gonna do uh in part because i just like that weird stuff i like i like to listen to it but like also just to signal to the viewer like yeah no we are trying to do something else here i would love to ask you a little bit about um because i know that lindley uh does magic work getting you rights clearance for everything that you do bring in but i would love to ask you about that process of of clearance and kind of where you bring in game footage um, and things that use the more traditional packaging and sort of how you think about where to use it. We try to be very intentional with how we use it. Um, like you said, Lindley uh, Seiko, she's our rights specialist, and she, um, I mean, we can't say enough about how much um, how important she is to every project like this. Um, I I would imagine over the course of the Viking series, we traded probably 175 emails in total. Um, But she helps us walk through building a fair use argument for all these things um, that would like pass muster. Um, And Alex, for one, has become incredible at writing for fair use, which is part of the reason, despite the fact that, or like in addition to to the fact that he uh, knows everything there is to know about football um, and can really break a play down. Uh, he is the one who does the play-by-play almost all the time uh, because he's so good at writing to that. And it really is like an art and a skill that we've had to get a lot better at over the years. And, you know, for example, if we wanted to talk about 
if I want to talk about Randy Moss, I can't just ambiently say some stuff I think about Randy Moss while just showing just random clips of him doing Randy Moss stuff. Uh, I got to speak to the footage specifically. Um, and honestly, what it's done at first, you know, when I first started getting into making video like this, um, I thought it was going to be like a huge detriment. Um, but really, the thing that it made me do is make things better. I became a better writer. And it's like, no, I'm not going to talk about this unless I really, really want to talk about it. There's got to be intent here. If there's not, I'm not just going to throw it on there. Um, so frankly, yeah, opposite effect um, than what I expected. I, I, I love working within those confines. Especially because there is such a, like a deservedly famous 30 for 30 on Randy Moss. It's that section of the story um, I found very impressive to just do with your voice a couple newspaper clippers and clippings and very intentional use of footage for what made him so exceptional mm -hmm. yeah it's actually it's it's an interesting kind of uh you know a and b um you've got like rand university that 30 for 30 which i i watched during this um just to make sure like i didn't forget anything i i rewatched it for the first time in a long time it was awesome and uh I feel like, you know, the, the difference between the two isn't necessarily a greater than or less than at all. It's just two very different things that sort of complement one another. Um, if you want something that like really kind of digs um, deep and goes like way in on certain things and has a lot more editorialization and um, has some random guy just saying stuff to you for a long time. Yeah, choose mine. Um, but if you want something a little bit more like with more footage and more, you know, like actual like assets and things like that. And things with like, you know, the, the voiceover in that um, is present, but it's a lot more sparse and it's a lot more intentional than me just going on and on and all on all day. So uh, yeah, to me, those two ways of telling a story are two halves to the same whole. You can absolutely pass on this question, but I am curious if there is an episode or, or sort of a section of the history of the Minnesota Vikings uh, that you're proudest of? I think some of my favorite moments are my favorite, not necessarily because of how we did them, but because of how the actual moments themselves uh, made me feel. The Minneapolis miracle, of course, is one of the cool, despite never being a, a serious Vikings fan, uh, is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in sports. Yeah, I do like how we treated the um, 1998 uh, NFC Championship game between the, the Vikings and, and Falcons, how we were able to tell that story from the opposite angle, um, almost like a, <laughs> almost like a Beowulf Grendel kind of thing, um, where, uh, yeah, we used the same music, the same music cue that's like, to me, always been kind of like distressing and haunting and everything, the callback to the Falcon. Um, and then... You know, for the first time, we, we go long on the specifics of the coaching decision and the clock management and, and everything like that. And we set it to this like eight minute long freeform jazz track that I had been sitting on for like four years, had no idea what to do with. And I was like, you know what? No, this is this is the time I'm, I'm trying to get less literal with my music cues. Uh, I used to before use like really, really like scary music for something like that. Um, but let me just instead use some more like ominous sort of, um, almost kind of neutral things like the, the composers of that piece never intended, you know, to, to have it used in that way. 
let me let me drop this in there. It's gonna make it real weird and it's gonna it kind of throws me off balance. So maybe it'll do the same for the viewer. And a lot of people told me like, no, that was perfect. That was the perfect music cue for that. So I suppose that would be one answer for for a choice I'm particularly proud of. Nice. That's a great answer. Yeah, it is really fun uh, to see like that moment where the the two series are in conversation with each other. As a native New Orleanian, it is nice to be the antagonist in both, I will say. <laughs> we didn't even intend it. You know, on its face, <laughs> like I, I love New Orleans so much. I was just there a few months ago and I, it's one of my favorite cities. And like, I love the Saints in general. Historically, I love the city of New Orleans. Um it's just like random bad luck that they happen to be the ultimate villains in, in uh, not one, but two of our big series. Uh, it's it's great. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I, you know, the I, in the way that I feel like a, a, a good story is, is an empathy machine, the series positions you to sort of see see uh, the story through the perspective of people who care about the Falcons, however mistaken they may be, um, and, uh, and and about the Vikings, and and sort of go on on that journey. It's very cool, and it was it was very interesting to me. You know, sort of uh, in in the last episode, um, your section on Teddy Bridgewater um, and sort of bringing yourself into the narrative. I would love to ask you about that. I don't necessarily make it a point to um, insert myself and my personal biases as a football watcher or fan or whatever into things. Um, but when it makes sense, when I think it would make the story better, I go ahead and stick my foot in it. And um, I I wanted to talk about like how much I love Teddy Bridgewater and why I love him. And I know it's something that like, you know, he's at his height. He was mostly just a mid-tier starting quarterback. Um, but to those, he's, he's kind of like almost like a cult hero to a lot of fans in college and in the NFL. And I realized like in order to really uh, talk about this guy the way I want to talk about him, I have got to admit my biases straight up and um, just say like, hey, this is my favorite guy. I know I'm like almost breaking the fourth wall here and this is straying into the territory of like a video essay more than a straight up documentary. But like if that's the price, then uh, so be it, you know? Yeah. And I feel like, you know, because of the format, the fact that it doesn't look like an ESPN film, you have a lot of latitude to uh, sort of stretch the documentary and and um, not necessarily have it all be one format, uh, which is very cool. Yeah. Thanks. So we like to take on, you know, I, I particularly like to take on different sort of narrative voices, depending on you know, what the situation calls for. Um, sometimes I'm just being completely unserious and ridiculous. Um, other times I'm being completely over serious and ridiculous. Um, and then other times I'm actually being genuine because I'm talking about something that's serious or makes me sad. So I, I hope that works and I hope that isn't too jarring for the, for the viewer. Um, I can understand if someone thought it was like too all over the place in terms of the voice and in terms of the, of just like the tone of the whole thing. But um, to me, I, I see it as a strength and something I try to try to lean into. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the the way the series opens with the two origin myths does a great job of sort of 
letting the viewer know this is the ride you're going to be on. These are the kind of elements that are going to come in. Yeah, I would love to, to end with the beginning and, and sort of ask you about sort of how, how those two stories became the hooks for the series. Well, yeah, I had heard uh, for some reason over the course of my American life, it had somehow been internalized, um, this myth that um, Norse explorers had visited like inland Minnesota in like the year 1362 or whenever it was. Um, and of course, it's like pretty well established that they landed in Newfoundland in I think the 11th century or something like that. But I, I think a lot of people and like what I read bore this out is most people heard that as a young at a young age and were like, huh, well, I guess so. Um, and so I had to include that just because upon reading about just like how <laughs> on its face false it is, um, I was like, you know what, that's that's something I got to kick off with. Um, and also just like the two, you know, an exp exploration of the definition of the word myth where like, you know, myth can mean BS. Um, it can mean something that's actually true. Um, to me, the one thing that makes a story a myth, whether it's true or false, is like, does it like burn in the hearts of people? Like, does it stick with you? Is it something that inspires you, regardless of whether it's true or not? And it was a pretty heavy um, cold open, <laughs> a pretty heavy choice for a cold open about like a YouTube sports documentary. Um, but yeah, as you said, I, I kind of wanted to start with something, um, surprising like that, um, just to let people know, you know, what they're in for. So like, listen, I'm asking for a lot of your time. We're asking you to watch for like seven or nine hours and we don't want to, we don't want you to feel like you are being Trojan horsed, you know, uh, you, we want to make sure that it is what it says on the can and that, you're going to get a lot of football and a lot of cool moments and stuff like that. But you'll also get some of this because it's really the only way we know how to do this thing. John Boyce, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. My pleasure. Mm -hmm.